outstanding. Let's pray for those folks. Jesus, thank you for baptism and that you you give us something to do that is memorable and that is something you did as a way for us to show publicly that our lives have changed. And I pray that you would keep those that have been baptized in your love and that they would follow through with the intentions they have so purely right now that you would help them along the way and protect them and that they might have a full life serving you and following you and loving you and enjoying you. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, that was awesome. And so you've heard some of the word already through testimonies. Um, We're going to look for the next four Sundays at the book of Jonah, uh, probably one chapter each Sunday. And then the fifth Sunday, four weeks from now, I'll give some sort of farewell, it was awesome to be here sermon, as that'll be uh, August 20th will be my last Sunday here for a while with school starting and um, the search for a senior pastor and all of that that's going on with your congregation. You probably know the story of Jonah, and so it is my intention and hope to not tell it exactly the way you know it, because we know it pretty well horizontally. We know that it's about Jonah. We probably know his story. But I've been challenged, uh, re-challenged lately by a book by Marva Don, who's a fantastic writer, who wrote a book called In the Beginning, God. And it's titled that for two reasons. One is because it's going through the first chapters of Genesis. And so it quotes how the Bible starts. But, but, but the second reason is that she's challenging us as believers to realize that when we read the Bible, we should be thinking, in the beginning, God. In the beginning of our reading, in the beginning of our encountering, that the Bible is mostly a book that God has given us to reveal who he is. And it is next, and maybe not even second, but down there, further down, it is a book that tells us who we are, and certainly we can learn things from the characters. But it is first the revelation of God. It is God showing us who he is through a book. So we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, but I'm going to do my best to make things about Jonah surface area and things about God uh, the signposts in the sermon. It's a long, a little longer than we're used to, 16 verses, but I still would like you to stand please as we read it. I'll read the entire first chapter. Of Jonah, if you are in a pew Bible, it's on 774. And then we will look at what can we learn about God? Who is God according to Jonah 1? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amitia, I think, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship 
threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7. And then they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then, he, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempest. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rolled hard and tried to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempests against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not the innocent blood on, on us. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God, help us learn about you from this chapter so that we might better encounter you and love you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're following along in the bulletin handout, you see that the first point is that uh, God cannot be escaped. He, he must be encountered, and he will be encountered. And we see examples of that in this text. From the very first verse, where it says, a word of the Lord came to Jonah, which would be fairly paraphrased, God spoke. He said something. And that's where it all starts. That's where the whole world started, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so he laid down a general principle for how the world was going to work. He was going to say something, and things were going to happen. And he speaks to Jonah. And Jonah tries to escape him, and we see that he cannot. But there are, there are three primary ways that he speaks to us all. And the primary way that's been mentioned more than once this morning is the Word of God. It was meant, mentioned in the mission statement. It was quoted in some of the testimonies. And so we have the Word of God for him to speak to us. The Word of God is the general revelation of who God is. It's called general because it's for all of us. Um, as a group. In other words, the Bible isn't going to say something to you that it's not going to say to me. Um, an old statement is that the Bible always means what it has always meant. Okay? So whatever it means, it means. And you're thinking, well, not really, because I read this and I went this direction and someone else read this and they went that direction. Well, that's because of the second way he speaks to us, which is through the Holy Spirit. This is where he speaks to us specifically and individually and personally. This is why I can say I was called to marry my wife and you were not. All right? So, 
We are uniquely and specifically led by the Lord personally. And of course the two go together. So we read the word of God to see who God is and who we should be. And then we hear from the Holy Spirit to individually and personally and uniquely apply the same scripture as someone else is applying in our life as an individual. And then um, you have the word of God, the very what's often called the very first word of God, and that is nature. So that in Romans chapter 1, it says that everyone should know that God exists. There's no excuse for not knowing that he's around because there's mountains and there's weather and there's birds and there's fish and there's things like that. So he speaks to us primarily uh, in three ways. Nature to say, hey, there's a God somewhere. Bible to say, yeah, here's who he is. And the Holy Spirit to say, and here's who you should be because of the God that exists and because of the character of God that he possesses. Now, what should be fascinating but isn't because we are immune to the fascination we should have every time we consider God is the fact that he communicates at all. Not to mention three primary ways and dozens and hundreds of other unique ways we're not going over, but that this, this God who's the king of the universe and has always existed would even communicate at all to us should be mind-blowing because I don't communicate with ants. That's ridiculous, right? They're smaller and different and bother me, and why would I even have any sort of relationship with them? But uh, George, um, Charles Spurgeon said to compare a blue well to an ant isn't even close to comparing the differences between God and people because both the blue well and the ant were created. <laughs> okay, we're talking about an uncreated, eternal, infinite God daring and loving to communicate with us. And so the fact that the word of the Lord even comes to Jonah is impressive. And he he, he tells Jonah what to do, and you're familiar with that, and we we'll, might talk about Jonah later, but he, he says, uh, you need to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is full of wicked people that Jonah hates. Jonah is, a, um, I can't call him a white supremacist because he's Jewish, so we'll call him a Jewish supremacist. He is, but, it, but akin to the white supremacy thinking. He's like, my culture is the best culture. It's the only culture. If you're not part of my culture, then you're trash. And so the Ninevites are trash, and besides being trash because they're not him, they're wicked. They're awful in battle. There's terrible stories about what they do to prisoners of war, including women and children. They're not good people. So he was told to go that way, which is 550 miles, and instead he went the other way 2,500 miles, or was headed to Tarshish the other way 2,500 miles. To put it in perspective, it would be like this. If God somehow overwhelmed you, spoke to you, and said, you need to go to Cuba, about 550 miles away. And you need to just walk up and down that island just saying, Castro's a loser. Castro's stupid. Don't obey Castro. Repent and follow God. You probably wouldn't make it three days, right? And that would be an odd thing. You would think, God, why would you want me to do that? It's awful. He says, but he says, go this place and, and, and preach against them and tell them they're evil. And instead, he goes to Seattle. I tried to make it straight across because in, in the biblical geography, it was more straight across to Tarshish, but it's not enough miles. San Diego's not enough miles. So we'd have to go to San Diego, then up to Seattle, and then that would be about 2,500 miles. So, so if you live in Nacogdoches, which is probably where he lived in Jerusalem, 
and Joppa is like a sister city, like Nacogdoches, Lufkin, okay? So you get the word of the Lord, and you go to Nacogdoches. Instead of catching a flight to Cuba, you catch a flight to Seattle. This is the rebellion that Jonah has wrapped up in. So that should blow our minds as well. So God speaks. That's fascinating. That's amazing. That's gracious. And we don't obey. Wow. That's fascinating. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing as well. And so what God does after these things happen, when he speaks and we don't obey, is he begins to ruin our lives. I'm using that for effect and quoting Mike Iaconelli, a great guy in California, who would say that. He would say, uh, I'm a Christian because God ruined my life. So then people would listen. And he would talk about, yeah, I used to live this way, and he ruined it for me. You know, I used to be self-centered, and I used to be selfish, and I used to be racist, and God ruined it. And now I'm loving and generous and not racist anymore. And that's what God is going to do here for Jonah. He is trying to ruin his life because his life is not pleasing to him. And we're told by Jesus that he he's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He speaks, we disobey and flee, and he pursues he pursues. He comes after us, which is also mind-blowing. And so he comes after Jonah in the form of a storm. Verse 4, so he's got on the ship. He paid the fare, by the way. There's so many interesting things in here. Probably would have got to Nineveh on God's bank account in rebellion, has to pay his own fare. Um, but we're trying to just talk about God. So here's what God does. He sends a storm. And he's sending a storm as a way of pursuing Jonah. He's after Jonah. He's trying to ruin his life because his life is going the wrong way. Okay? He's saying, as Scarlett said so well, get out of the pilot's seat. What are you doing? You're only going to crash. Everyone who runs their own life crashes. This is awful. I'm the God of the universe. I'm not supposed to fly. Coach, put me in the pilot's seat. And so he's trying to overwhelm Jonah to gain some repentance from Jonah so that Jonah's life will go better. And he encounters him through the word and then through the storm. So here is, one, God cannot be escaped but will be encountered. Here's what I mean by that. God speaks, certainly. He speaks clearly through nature, through the word, through the Holy Spirit. He speaks. But we don't listen. We don't follow him. And as we don't follow him, he will ruin our rebellion. He will pursue us. He will come after us. And as he comes after us, it is only to draw us back so that we could give him glory and live by his grace. In the suffering that we, we experience as we rebel, it is, it is only God trying to tune our frequency back to hear him speak and the static and the disruption and all that it causes is certainly unpleasant but it is a very loving thing that he is doing and so it seems that he does this through random events which is the second point in your bulletin seemingly random events are really all orchestrated by God he directs seemingly random events to reach the most unlikely people 
he's going to reach two unlikely groups, the sailors and Jonah. They are both unlikely. One, because he is fleeing God in open rebellion. He's announced his rebellion. We read to these sailors. They knew that he was fleeing from the Lord. And sailors, because they're pagans and don't have any care. You hear them, and we read. They say, please, you call on your God, and you call on your God, and you call on your God, because oh, they just want to be rescued. They don't care which God does it, and they don't even know there is one true God. And God is pursuing both of them. Ironically, he captures the sailors before he ever captures Jonah as he's pursuing them with his grace. So look at these seemingly random events. One would be the storm. This great wind comes in. It must have been a great wind because uh, trained sailors are scared, okay? I went deep sea fishing this past week. I was in Gulf Shores, and we love to deep sea fish. And as they were giving us the speech beforehand, the deckhand said, if you see me put on a life jacket and jump in the ocean, that is your cue to do the same. It's like, okay. So... Because we know as a rule, if this guy that's been 10 years on a boat uh, is having problems, then I better not ask what's the situation. I better just follow suit. So these sailors, these sailors, this is what they did for a living. They're scared. So it must be a terrible, terrible storm. And certainly in their mind, it's a random event. It's just a storm that came in. But we read in verse 4, God hurled a wind. That God is sovereign over the weather. That God sent the storm as part of his pursuit for Jonah and for these sailors. We know that the storm is terrible because they're throwing cargo off the ship to try to lighten the load. And when they've thrown all the cargo, they look for people to throw, right? Because they throw lots to say, okay, the cargo is still a bad storm. We've got to throw a person off. The Bible says that the storm was so bad it was threatening to break up the ship. And all of the fear and all the events and the weather and the ship almost breaking is all in the orchestration of God. Verse 4, God hurled a great wind. So he speaks and then he controls seemingly random events. He hurls a storm. We read in the Gospels that Jesus calmed a storm, so he can do either one. It's interesting in the, in the storm that the disciples were in when Jesus calmed it. He said, peace be still, and it said, all, it said immediately the, the sea was still. That's a little more impressive than just the storm stopped. You realize that, right? I mean, it's, not, it's, it's as if the, the rock hit the water and then the ripples just disappeared. So that's God calming the storm from the bottom of the sea all the way to the top, completely calming the sea, not just taking away the storm, but inserting calm. Here he's bringing a storm. There he calms a storm. He's sovereign over weather. He is sovereign over the fish. We read in the very last verse of the chapter, the, not the last verse, sorry. Yes, the last verse, 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's interesting, appointed, not random, not there happened to be a fish. And just, we could do this for every situation, but let's just do it for the fish. Okay, so appointed the fish. So the whole fish's life, God is orchestrating this fish to get to a certain size so that he can swallow a human being. 
recently in the fish's life, God has orchestrated for what the fish wants to eat to get away so that the fish's appetite is high. Also recently in the fish's life, God has decided to bring the fish into this part of the sea or perhaps use the storm to bring the ship into the part of the sea where the fish is. But you see, I just want you to see this picture of orchestration. That God is directing all these events and bringing all these things together. He is not detached. He is not some distant, uninvolved, observing God. He is within the circumstances that we think are random, orchestrating things. He's trying to rescue the saviors. Think about the whole process of the sailors being hired for that ship and how God was orchestrating the people he wanted on that ship. He orchestrated the ship's building because it says the ship's about to break away and it might have been him as it was getting built that orchestrated it to be just strong enough not to break and just weak enough to scare them half to death. And he's controlling the storm to, to, to make it almost break away as well. Jesus once said that as he came in, and we saw such an amazing picture of that today with all these children getting baptized. As he came into the city and people were, were laying down and worshiping him, and, he, and he's saying, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you've got to be like children. And people are, uh, the Pharisees, give him a hard time about that. And he says an amazing thing. He says, if... They don't worship me. The rocks would cry out. And another place says, the rocks would become children of Abraham. Now that's fascinating because you can't just produce a child of Abraham because being a child of Abraham, being a Jew in that day was all about genealogy. So when God says, I can turn these rocks to people, that's not all he's saying. He's saying, I can turn these rocks to people who are children of Abraham, which means... I gave them parents and grandparents. He's talking about creating a whole generation, like 14 generations deep. And he said, I can just do that like that. So he's sovereign, and he, and he uses his sovereignty graciously to bring us close to him, not viciously to push us away, not viciously to punish us, but graciously. And so what happens, and I hope I could communicate this well, What happens is all these seeming meaningless random events in our life are, are turned at the point of conversion. And it is not different than the structure of a joke. When you tell a joke, you have a setup. And this is Michael Jr. is an amazing Christian comedian that I heard this from. Frederick Bucher wrote it in a book as well years and years ago. That, that as, when you have a joke... You have the setup. You have the story going one way. And a punchline is when you take that story and you move it in another direction that's humorous or ironic and causes people to laugh. What he's doing is he's taking all these people in the direction of death. We're going to die. 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 And the punchline is that he rescues them. We read after they threw Jonah into the sea that... They feared the Lord, verse 16, and offered sacrifices to him. Before that, they prayed to him. So look at the direction. Pagan people with multiple gods become 
a faithful people acknowledging one God. If you read the passage, the little g God is in their first conversations to Jonah and the big G God is in their second conversations to God. They've had a conversion experience. They were moving one direction and they got yanked another direction. Rick Hurst mentioned the glorious punchline of God in servant leadership that to be, if you're the king of kings, then everyone thinks, okay, we're supposed to serve you. We're supposed to serve you. That's the direction. Everything's going. Jesus comes down to the planet and changes the direction. No, I'll serve you. And so one of the greatest punchlines in my life and the greatest punchline in your life that really will bring hilarity forever is simply the punchline, Jesus loves me. That's hysterical. Because if you know the way I was going, if you know the way life was working, it was all headed in one direction, and then he comes and he switches the direction and redeems us. It's amazing. And that's how he pursues us. And so in, in the setup, which is hard and confusing and seemingly random, he's just setting us up for a great punchline. You've got to have the setup, which is sometimes struggle and boring, to have that great punchline. And then finally, he desires, third insight into God, he desires to reach people who don't know him. Jonah is a racist who is full of arrogance and superiority, and God wants to reach him. The sailors are pagans, and God wants to reach them. And that should blow our mind. That... We have a God who at every rejection offered us a more intimate relationship rather than abandoning us. Let me conclude with that. I'm going to summarize all of Scripture in about three minutes just from the point of view of God doing that for us. So in the beginning, God is setting himself up as creator, and we are creature. And we reject the relationship, right? Adam and Eve eat fruit from the forbidden, the, the forbidden fruit from the tree. And instead of killing us, wiping us off, he extends another relationship. If you read Exodus, the refrain from God is, I will be your God and you be my people. And we reject the relationship. We build a golden calf and we say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And God doesn't kill us. He offers another relationship. You keep reading in the Old Testament and you have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, which is this idea of God's going to be king and we're going to be citizens and he's going to set up a kingdom. And he said, I'll, I'll be your king. You don't need a king like everyone else. And if you read the Bible, you see that we rejected that relationship, right? We said so foolishly, give us a king like everybody else has a king. So even back then, we had in our nature that we wanted to be like everybody else. I love the irony of the story because they picked a king, Saul, because he was tall. And I'm like, you had God. He's got to be taller than Saul. God's like huge. He's like bigger than the mountains. We want a tall guy. We want Saul. So they get Saul, and God tells Samuel, uh, they've rejected me. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So we read in the prophets, starting with Isaiah, going through Jonah, through Malachi, this refrain, especially in Hosea, where God says, you know what, I will be your husband and you be my bride. Do you see what he's doing here? It's amazing. So creature, oh, sorry, we're creature down here, <laughs> creators up here. 
Creator, creature, we said no way. Okay, God and people, no, no way. Okay, king and citizens, no thank you. Okay, husband and wife, surely we can make this happen. It's it's this intimate, wonderful relationship. And throughout the prophets, you hear God say, especially in Hosea and other places, they have committed adultery. We rejected it again. So, he showed up in skin. Are you kidding me? And Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I tell you to do. Can you, can, you, can you grasp the descent that God has made from creator to God to king to husband to friend? said, hey, can, can, we, can we just be friends? And you know our rejection to that was, no, but we will crucify you. We chant, crucify him, crucify him. And God, who is the best comic, tricked us. And the glorious punchline is that when we rejected him that time, he died for our sins. He took our pattern of rejection, and he said, oh, I can work with that. I'm going to come all the way down to you, and when you reject me, I will purchase you with my blood. It's the greatest trick ever. The Trojan horse has nothing on the virgin birth. He came all the way down, was born of a virgin, placed in a manger, died on a cross. Are you kidding me? It should blow us away that this is the God that will talk to us. This is the God who will pursue us because this God wants to reach the most unlikely people. And your joy will skyrocket if you realize you are the unlikely and I am the unlikely. So Jesus came and died on the cross to switch places with us that he who knew no sin could become sin for us. That we could have this glorious exchange where we give him all of our sin and all of our struggles and he gives us all of his righteousness and all of his peace and all of his grace. And that's the exchange that those that were baptized experienced and bragged on today. And that's the exchange all of us can have because of the amazing God that's available to us. So let me pray. And before I pray, I want to ask a few questions. Is he speaking to you? Do you care to encounter him? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. He will make you new, and he will give you the best punchline of your whole life for you to be able to say, I am saved. I am his. And that happens through repentance and allowing him to ruin the life that we have now and give us another life. Let me ask that that would happen. Jesus, I pray uh, wherever we are on the spectrum of knowing you, whether it's not yet or for years, that we would feel your Holy Spirit talking to us about knowing you better, about moving along that spectrum in worship and in obedience to have a life that you give us instead of trying to live the life that we're just making up as we go along. I pray that as we worship you, In song, we might encounter you and love you and change because we were here. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand to sing, please?